It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome to the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston, and we've got a good one for you today. It's going to actually be uh, somewhat provocative because it's got a lot of thought process into it. And this is just one of those things that came to me when I was thinking about the state of the economy and it just kind of all rushed on top of me and I just felt like I had to share it with you guys. The title of today's show is going to be The Legacy of a Generation and then I put dot 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 not the millionaire next door and I'll explain what this all means in a minute. Let me go ahead and give you the contact information as well as the website for the show. I am your host Brian Preston. I'm a certified public accountant, certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist which means I'm a CPA that does financial planning as well as a NAPFA registered financial advisor. That's the fee-only organization. I'm on the south side of Atlanta this is not my day job. This is the day job is I'm a feeling wealth manager and then as a hobby to try to, to bring some common sense or actually going beyond common sense to your personal finance, we do this blog and podcast. And I got to tell you, if you go check us out on the website, that's money-guy.com. We've got two membership levels now. First of all, if you don't sign up for anything, we've amended our policy because it was interfering with iTunes. You're going to be able to get three shows just by going to money-guy.com. But if you go ahead and register on the the, the membership section for the free sites, you can get the last 15 shows and the last 15 show notes, as well as updates whenever we do new shows to keep you in the loop so you can get all those links and everything else to keep you up to date with what's going on on the Money Guy Show. And then, of course, you can sign up for the premium section. Premium section's been going great, so great that I'm taking half the day tomorrow to research the fair tax. Um, I've already read the books, but now I need to kind of put pen to paper bring up some Excel spreadsheets and see if I can really put together some objective information for you guys when I do that fair tax podcast in the coming weeks. So thanks so much for everybody who's on the ground floor and signed up for the premium section of the Money Guy Show. So let's let's jump right into what we're going to be talking about today. Where this all came about is that I'm trying to figure out from a personal financial planning or looking at the economy for my firm and all the clients of my firm is where are we in this economy? It's one of those things where the Dow Jones went all the way down to 6,500. Uh, we've bounced back today. We are, this is Thursday of the day we're recording this, and it was it was getting close to 8,900 on the Dow Jones. So so it was starting to feel like we've rebounded. I'm sleeping again, not as stressed out about um if I'm disappointing the clients as I was back in October, November, January, February. I think you guys, if you go listen to those older podcasts, you can feel the stress that w- that was on my mind at that time. And we've possibly reached a, a, an equilibrium state where maybe we realized that we oversold to the point that it was unrealistic to be at 6,500 with the valuations of a lot of the stocks out there. But now we're at the stage where where do we go from here? And I'm not so sure I know the answer. And I know that's probably not the answer that you expect to hear out of a financial professional. But um, we try to be very honest here at the Money Guy Show. And I've really been reading a lot, trying to digest a lot, and just trying to figure out where we are with this economy. And I can tell you kind of the the information I've brought in that's helping me make a decision, but I don't I haven't figured out exactly where we are. I can tell you this from the standpoint of 
how long it takes for a typical economic cycle to go through and reset, we've put our time in. You know, we, we started going really bad in the fourth quarter of 2007. 2008, we kept putting down, down, down. And then, as you know, into September, beginning of October, we fell off a cliff. And then we kept falling off that cliff. It was like the never-ending fall until we hit the month of December because October and November were just dreadful. December, we got a little bit of a reprieve. I think people were just were tired of falling, so um, we bounced back momentarily, but then we fell right back even to a, a, a steeper hole in January or February. And so I think we've put our lumps in. We, we've got our time in. But we're now at that point where... I'm starting to look at the obligations of the United States government, what we've done over the last 20 to 30 years, and what that means to the business and economic cycle of the United States, as well as how that impacts the world. And, you know, you don't, you'd have to live under a rock not to notice, and I don't mean to keep harping on it, but, but there, you can sense that I, there's a little frustration is that we've got Social Security that, that in the next few years will be paying out more than it takes in. Medicare, by its own account, by its own accounting, will be within the next decade, actually I think 2016 is the numbers they recently came out with, will be essentially, I don't think they, the government uses the word bankrupt, but it will be insolvent from having enough money unless additional revenue or additional sources, they, they don't have revenue, they have tax collections and government funding that comes through, but unless additional inflows of money come in, Medicare is going to have trouble, and you know we've had all these other things going on from the bank banking crisis, crisis, the automakers, the government's been doiling out a lot of money and printing a lot of treasuries, and we're starting to hear the drum beat louder and louder from Asia and other foreign purchasers of our securities and our treasuries and our dollar bills. They're starting to say enough is enough, guys. You, you know, just because you have a world currency that's accepted everywhere doesn't mean we're going to put up with this. So I started thinking about all this and figuring out what does this mean as an average investor, as a manager of, of people's retirement and carrying that weight upon my shoulders, what does this mean to us? And then I started cussing you know, to myself and getting a, get a, getting a little mad um, actually a lot mad about the whole political environment in our country. You know, it, how we've gotten so partisan, how you have the Republicans, the Democrats, all getting mad at each other, not getting much done. And then if you kind of strip them away from their titles and their names, Democrat, Republican, or wherever they are, and you start noticing they're very similar in their policies and the ways they, they've managed and run the country. So, that's silly. That, I, I came to the realization that the partisanship of our country, of the United States, is actually the smoke. That the fire of what is wrong and what got us in this situation, the fire is actually something completely, completely different. And then it hit me last night. And, and I came in this morning and I told Bo I was really excited. I said, I came up with our next podcast topic. I don't know how well it's going to be received. Might even have some people upset. But I'm going to tell you, I want you to look at this in a macro sense, meaning I want you as a listener to step out of yourself. Because if you're listening to this, you're probably pretty responsible. Um, not many people who are in a lot of credit card debt, uh, who are not saving for retirement, are listening to personal finance podcasts on the internet, iTunes, or just directly from our website. So you are to be commended, but I'm asking you to step outside of yourself, look at this from 
the macro sense of where we are in the economy and how this could be something very different. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that in just a second. There's some incredible correlations between the generations of the last hundred years and the cycle of personal wealth. And I got to tell you, I think my firm, me and Bo have been doing some research, our firm is uniquely qualified to discuss this and those correlations because of our experiencing uh, experience of managing individual assets for wealthy families and then seeing how those wealthy families train and teach their children to handle money and seeing how that next group of people who are born into wealth handle the responsibility of what's been given to them. And, and that, that's kind of where we're going. But first, we need to understand personal wealth and what the successful people, millionaires, have in common. And there are some principles that have made us as a country as well as made individuals extremely profitable, prosperous, and successful. And that's what I want to talk to you. And, and the, I pulled a lot of this keyed in when this all came to me last night. It keyed in to The Millionaire Next Door that I've read several times. Love the book. As I've told you guys, if you're just starting in personal finance, go read The Wealthy Barber first. Read like a narrative. And then after you read The Wealthy Barber, drop over to my second favorite book, which is The Millionaire Next Door. And I just noticed on the cover, because I had to go buy a new copy because I, I've given the old copy out to a, a client or a friend. I can't remember where I gave the last one away. But this one was just bought about a month ago, and it's only sold. It says more than 2 million copies sold. But that sounds like a lot. But then I started thinking, well, if that's only 2 million out of everybody out there, and you, and you hear about all, you know, the what's the new vampire series? My, my wife has read all those. What's Twilight, um, you know, those books sell millions and millions of copies. So relatively speaking, not a ton of us have read The Millionaire Next Door, but it has some great, great insight. And this is done by two doctors, Thomas Stanley and then William Danko, both doctors, PhDs, and they did a lot of research on millionaires and what makes a millionaire. And I want to read you some of these, these issues as well as give you the seven factors that make up the behavior of a typical millionaire and then how that relates to the U.S. government and what has made us successful in the past. It says the large majority of these millionaires are not descendants of the Rockefellers or Vanderbilts. More than 80 percent are ordinary people who have accumulated their wealth in one generation. They did it slowly, steadily, without signing a multi-million dollar contract with the Yankees, without winning the lottery, without becoming the next Mick Jagger. Windfalls make great headlines. But such occurrences are very rare. In the course of an adult's lifetime, the probability of becoming wealthy via such paths is lower than 1 in 4,000. I want to repeat that. If you were waiting, because I go into high schools all the time being on the school board, and I ask people, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I can't tell you how many people tell me they're going to be R&B stars, country stars, professional athletes, and, and, and it kind of frustrates you, you. You leave the situation pulling your hair out going, oh, my goodness, they have no idea. Because, as I said, the probability of becoming wealthy via such paths of that windfall is lower than 1 in 4,000. Contrast these odds with the proportion of American households. There's 3.5 per 100 in the $1 million and over net worth category. So that, that's what goes in. So I just told you most millionaires, 80% of them, 
our first generation. Now, let's hear about the seven factors that lead the, the behavior that's kind of created the success. These are the basic elements that have led to these people becoming millionaires, and I think this directly correlates with the government as well as the generations of the last hundred years. So listen to this. First, what do millionaires have in common? They Number one, they live well below their means. Number two, they allocate their time, energy, and money efficiently in ways conducive to building wealth. Got to turn the page. Three, they believe that financial independence is more important than displaying high social status. Their parents did not provide, number four, their parents did not provide economic outpatient care. Number five, their adult children are economically self-sufficient, meaning they didn't have 30, 35-year-old children living at home. Number six, they're proficient in targeting market opportunities. And number seven, they chose the right occupation. So that's the first excerpt I want to read out of The Millionaire Next Door. And it says, and as I want to reiterate, it said, you know, that 80% of millionaires are first generation. So that being the case, what happens to those family fortunes? Because if you think 80% are self-made, that means 20% inherited it or came across it some other means through a windfall uh, of, of some sort. Well, if that's the case, you would think, okay, well, you know, something happened to that money. Well, something did happen to that money. What, what typically happens to wealthy families, and I see this from our experience of working with wealthy families, is that you, you have one generation work very hard to make wealth, and then the second and third generations run it right back into the ground and then reset the whole process. So I want you to listen to this case study that's from the very first chapter of The Millionaire Next Door, and then I want to talk directly how that relates to these generations so you can see that correlation and also see where I came up with that title of Legacy of a Generation, and then I put dot, 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 not The Millionaire Next Door. Because listen to this case study. This is the typical example. They call it Victor and His Children in Chapter 1 of The Millionaire Next Door. It says, take this case study of Victor, a successful entrepreneur who's first-generation American. Entrepreneurs like him have typically been characterized by their thrift, low status, discipline, low consumption, risk, and very hard work. But after these genetic wonders become financially successes, then what? What do they teach their children? Do they encourage them to follow dad's lead? Do their children also become roofing contractors, excavation contractors, scrap metal dealers, and so on? The chances are they don't. Fewer than one in five do. That's only a 20% chance. No, Victor wants his children to have a better life. He encourages them to spend many years in college. Victor wants his children to become physicians, lawyers, accountants, executives, and so on. But in so encouraging them, Victor essentially discourages his children from becoming entrepreneurs. He unknowingly encourages them to postpone their entry into the labor market. And of course, he encourages them to reject his lifestyle of thrift and self-imposed environment of scarcity. That's a, that, that last sentence is very key that, of course, he encourages them to reject his lifestyle of thrift and self-imposed environment of scarcity. Victor wants his children to have a better life. But what exactly does Victor mean when he says that? He means that his children should be well-educated and have much better higher occupational status than he did. Also, better means better artifacts, fine homes, new luxury automobiles, quality clothing, and club membership. But Victor has neglected to include in this definition of better 
many of the elements that were the, the foundation stones of his success. He does not realize that being well-educated has certain economic drawbacks. Now, I'm not talking about the education does not bother me, and those career paths do not bother me. It's more of that whole consumption mentality of, you know, of, of wanting to have a better life um, with the club memberships, the big houses, and all that. And don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just getting back to that whole doing things on leverage, borrowing instead of actually having the assets to live below your means. There's nothing wrong with having success and buying the, these things that are accumulated by becoming successful if it's in the right time, meaning that you're not putting yourself behind. But the key thing that bothers me is that most successful people are not passing on the basic elements that were the, the foundation of their success. Those were those seven steps I talked about earlier. It says, Victor's well-educated children have learned that a high level of consumption is expected of people who spend many years in college and professional schools. Today, as children are under accumulators of wealth, they are the opposite of their father, the blue-collar successful business owner. His children have become Americanized. They are part of the high-consuming, employment-postponing generation. So I know that sounds intense, that case study does, but I'm trying to make a point here is because this is what I mean when I'm talking about the legacy of a generation, is you've got the baby boomers. They, I mean, well, let's talk about first, before we get to the baby boomers, the Depression-era generation. This generation, i got to tell you, the more I research and learn about this generation, incredible, incredible, incredible. First, they come through the era of the Depression. We hadn't seen nothing, by the way, in this downturn. I know it's been awful. I've told you about the loss of sleep nights and so forth as a money manager during this. But in comparison to what happened during the Great Depression, this is child's play. And these people, because they came through that period, they all also then got beat up with, you know, the whole World War II. You know, that they had to come and sacrifice and serve the country and fight back what was going on over in Europe. And, and you can see that that's just that generation was incredible. They had to do a lot of the things that were part of that seven steps of success. They had to live below their means. They had to not worry about the social status. They were more concerned about building a future for their family and, and having a good foundation for everything to work. And, and, and that was so important because, you know, one of the things that, that was so interesting about that generation is since they had to live with so little, that they wanted, just like the successful millionaire does, they wanted their children to have a better life. But better, just like with the millionaire next door, meant that they, you know, they wanted the better lifestyle, but they didn't necessarily pass on that better also meant the basic elements of success. And they encouraged them to reject the lifestyle of thrift, self-imposed environment of scarcity. And I think that you can directly see this in the leadership of our country. And I know that sounds like a hard thing to say, but the baby boomers have been the beneficiaries of one of the most successful generations of the last hundred years. The Depression era generation had so much to sacrifice. They wanted to give so much to their children, the baby boomers. And then the baby boomers come along, and that's exactly when we have you know, the 60s where you have, you know, the whole hippie movement, you have the education, you know, becomes very prominent and important. And education is still important. Don't get me wrong with that. But it ties directly into that millionaire next door where we kind of forget 
what made us successful as a country. The manufacturing, the, the understanding, um, you know, thinking that we don't have to do it ourselves, we can put it off to somebody else and we can be consumers. It's not about what you make or build or save. It's about the consumption. And, and I gotta tell you, this, is, um, this has not been good for America. And I think we're seeing this in our policies because it's that whole thing that 80% are self-made and now we're running this thing in the ground with the second generation, the baby boomers, and they're under accumulators of wealth. They live off of leverage. They lived off of debt. They've stuck their head in the sand about policies. I mean, let's talk about Social Security, Medicare. These are policies that could have been fixed years ago. It's not like this was thrown on President Obama. It's not like this was thrown on President Bush. This stuff has been known for decades, that we were going to have problems. It was a ticking time bomb sitting out there waiting to grab somebody who is willing to step up and address the concerns. But politicians, primarily baby boomer politicians, would stick their head in the sand and then poke it up every now and then go, uh, is the issue fixed? Is it fixed? Or am I out of here? And then they're waiting. I truly believe that the baby boomers are waiting until the last of their generation makes it through. And let's, let's define what a baby boomer is. A baby boomer is somebody who was born in the mid-40s, right after World War II, was winding down, all the way through the 50s. And then a Generation X, that's, that's the generation I'm in. That's why you probably can sense there's a little bit of resentment. And that's probably why you hear me always having this anger towards Social Security is somebody who was born in the mid-60s all the way to the mid-70s. We're the children of the baby boomers. And I'm telling you, the policies as well as the lifestyle has led this country into some issues. Everything that has happened, you think about what's going on with the housing market. What led to the downfall of the housing market was you have excess inventory. People went crazy. Banks were lending too much money to speculators and people who were building houses left and right, and, and it was outrageous. And then you had the consumer that was buying these houses, and they weren't just buying 15- and 30-year mortgages where they had to put down 20%. No, we had all these exotic products, these interest-only, all these products that had no money down. You could even pull money out at closing even though you just bought the house. I mean, these things were insane. It was the give me, give me, give me that led us to this, and it's that whole consumer consumption mentality and under-accumulation of wealth. And we see that constantly with what's going on with the state of the economy. So uh, I'm worried that where we are with the, with the generations, I hate that we're going to get to this level where now it's one generation pitted against another. And essentially, the baby boomers who are leaving office or who are, are winding down their careers are leaving the pieces to be picked up by the next generation. And it's not healthy. Instead of trying to create a better tomorrow for, the, you know, for their children, they're kind of leaving everything in, in rags. And, and you know, what they're leaving us with is that name. You, you heard in The Millionaire Next Door, it talked about that the large majority of millionaires are not descendants of the Rockefellers and Vanderbilts. Well, guess what? Generation X, Generation Y, and everybody after we are the descendants of the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts, meaning that we have a great name. But the financial, the balance sheets of those, what made those names great is kind of left in tatters. And I'm not trying to give you a, a, a downplaying 
you know, are trying to, to talk bad about the economy because, like I said, we've kind of reached an equilibrium. We've brought things back a little bit. I just want to draw attention and open up a dialogue to see if we can turn this train around and get more fiscal responsibility into government and so that they, t- they listen to what we're talking about, quit bickering over where somebody has an R or D next to their name, focus on, you know, how much money's coming in, how much is going out, and, and being reasonable. You can't build success, or you cannot, let's go ahead and sound educated, you cannot have success by borrowing off of future generations. And I got to tell you, the one thing that scares me, we have this great name of the United States, the thing that scares me, as you heard me say earlier, that 3.5% out of 100, that's, you know, so 3.5 out of every 100 is how many people become millionaires. Think about that. If we have to reset this, we got the greatest country. There is an exceptional America, but we're kind of missing out. If you think about where is innovation occurring now? You know, a lot more innovation is occurring over in Asia. When you talk, I'm talking about India, China, you know, Korea, areas like that where I got to tell you, being a geek is still cool. Doing math and science is still cool. I'm in schools constantly, and I got there's a, there's a part of high school kids right now that, and I think they get it directly from their parents, is it's not cool to be good in math anymore. It's not, you know, you're kind of a geek. Well, I got news for everybody. The geeks are who rule the world and take over in the, in the end. And that's why we need the innovation. We need the entrepreneurship that's going to take this country to the next level. So, Brian, why are you doing this podcast? You know, the seven things I want to talk about and reiterate the seven things that are in the millionaire next door, the seven factors, and talk about how those can relate to the United States. And let's turn it around. First, I also want to open this up as a forum where I want you, if you like what I say, dislike what I say, go to money-guy.com. Post a comment. Let's have an open forum on this. Let's have the people who agree with me say some stuff, and let's have the people who think I'm nuts for even making this correlation between baby boomers and, and, and the issues we're starting to have with the financial you know, banking industry as well as the downturn of the financial markets, how those correlations exist. You know, Put me some comments out there. Also, I would encourage you, if you don't like what's going on, Contact your elected official up in Washington, and, and it's on both sides. This isn't picking on just President Obama. This has been going on. The mistakes of the past are still going on right now as we speak, and I know you've got to have stimulus, short-term spending to try to get things going, but that's not exactly going on right now, and I worry about our future if we keep spending like we have, printing money with countries who've been buying the buyers of our currency in the past are now starting to go, wait a minute, guys, your treasuries, you've started, you've gotten a little crazy with that printing press. And, and when you start hearing about Asia and others considering decoupling from us, and believe me, they're not going to do it all at once because they're tied too much to our economy. But 10 to 15 years, you might not recognize the, the, the relationship we have with some other countries out there who have been big buyers of our stuff uh, of our of our treasuries and our and our assets might not be so interested in the next 10 to 15 years and might start focusing on their own populations and if they do that be careful what this country is going to look like and i'm not saying there's not going to be ways to make money off of the other countries there's still going to be ways to make money off of asia and other places i just don't want it to be that way because i love this country and i think everybody listening to this show is probably the same way so 
talk to talk to your elected officials. Talk to each other. Let's get some type of dialogue going on this because acceptance and understanding of what got us into these issues is the first step towards working towards a solution. And I think part of that solution is looking at those seven factors that have led to success. The first is living below our means. That should be the goal of everyone who's listening to this podcast as well as our, uh, as our federal government and state government and everybody else who is involved with leadership. Number two, allocate time, energy, and money efficiently in ways conducive to building wealth. Look at that. That is self-explanatory. Three, believe that financial independence is more important than displaying high social status. That's getting away from just all consumption and underaccumulating of assets. We've got to change that on the federal side. We've got to change it on our personal side. The country has to realize innovation, industry, small businesses is the way to, way to success. It's not by buying ourselves into success or spending our way into success as the government would like us to believe. Parents did not provide economic outpatient care. Same thing is that we've got to quit bailing out everything. I understand that the banking sector had to be saved so we wouldn't lose everything. But I think we've got some stability now. Let's start letting market forces work for themselves. They don't have a ch adult children who are economically, they have adult children who are economically self-sufficient. Well, that means, let me give this challenge out there to my Gen Xers who are listening as well as the Gen Yers and whatever else crazy name they've got out there. Shape up. If you're living at home and you're you know, 26, 25, you're out of school, let's get creative here. Maybe you're part of that innovation. Maybe you're the one that has the next great technology or the next great business model. Start thinking about what you can do to get off the parents' dole as well as so what we can do is become more self-sufficient as a country. And then proficient in, tar in targeting market opportunities. Number seven, choose the right occupation. And that's what I was talking about as a country. We've got to start focusing on math, science, and innovation. That's what's going on over in Asia and in Latin America. We need to pick up that and run with it. That's what made America great, and we've got to carry on with it. So I thought this was a very interesting topic. Like I said, this came to me last night, sitting there thinking about what's going on in this crazy, crazy world we live in, been enjoying that things have settled down, been able to focus on, you know, some, some house cleaning here at the office, even go devote, like I said, half a day to, to doing some podcast issues tomorrow. But I could not help it but talk about how close and how similar I think the experience of what's happened here in the United States over the last few years, especially on the downside of the market, but then also look at what led us to that and see the correlation. And then also see that the basic elements of what makes millionaires in the personal finance life, the same as what's going on with our government. And like I said, I'm not trying to pick on the baby boomers. A lot of you, if you are a baby boomer, probably are very successful. And you're doing the right things individually. But step outside of yourself and look at your generation as a whole. And I think you'll see that the Depression-era generation did such a good job of living below their means and making sure that their children had the best, a better lifestyle than what they had, that they might have spoiled them a little bit. And now that's leaving the baby boomers to kind of pass on to the next generation instead of passing on the foundation of something great. We might have to rebuild it. And that's scary, and I want you to think about it. Go to money-guy.com. Let's talk about this. You think I'm crazy? Tell me about it.
think I'm right, let me know that too. And let's see if we can get this ship turned around, the train turned around, whatever you want to say, and get this thing in the right direction and get back to innovation and the things that made us successful as a country. I'm your host. I'll talk to you soon. Brian Preston. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. (laughs) 